Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. As we probe our own deep, deep sadness with a sharp poker that we decorate in glitter after a little wine under a full moon. So grab your glitter poker, your glitter eyeshadow, your glitter boots, and let's do this thing. This week, we're talking about anxious attachment style and avoidant attachment style folks and why they're like two magnets in a rom-com, uh, <laughs> but a rom-com that is neither rom nor com. It's just a big fucking bummer in my experience, especially for anxious attachment style folks. Although I only say that because I have anxious attachment style and I am admittedly resentful toward all the avoidant attachment style dudes I've ever dated. Although I should probably put dated in quotation marks because I really don't know what that was that we did. So I do have to, I have to start with that disclaimer that I am coming from a place of bias, uh, just so everyone knows. Um, but I thought it would be good to start out with just some like basic definitions. So everyone knows what the heck's going on. Uh, I got this from mindbodygreen.com. They say an attachment style is a way of relating to others learned from our earliest childhood experiences. Anxious attachment is a type of insecure attachment style rooted in a fear of abandonment and an insecurity of being underappreciated. People with an anxious attachment style, also called preoccupied attachment disorder, often feel nervous about being separated from their partner. Avoidant attachment style involves a tendency to form insecure relationships out of a desire to remain independent and is characterized by emotional unavailability, end quote. And for whatever reason, it is a fucking thing that people with anxious attachment style are drawn to people with avoidant attachment style and vice versa. Like, why? Why can't two people who are both anxious about being abandoned get together and not abandon each other? Like what? And why can't two people who don't want to reach into the depths of their partner's soul who would rather not talk for days at a time and then just like hang out? Like, why can't they date? Why do us anxiously attached people so often find ourselves drawn to people who aren't emotionally available? To provide some clarity around this issue that I've super struggled with, and I know tons of my friends have struggled with as well, is performance artist, therapist, and disco lover for life. So Lasta McIntyre, hey, welcome. How are you? you. Well, excited to talk about this. I'm also on the anxious spectrum, so know it well. Okay. Yay. Well, I'm so excited that you're here. I've talked to you in the past on a different pod and I loved having you on. So welcome back. It's so great to see your beautiful shining face. And I very much look, look forward to, to getting some clarity around this because it really has been something that is like plagued my, um, relationship history. So, um, fuck. Yeah. I'm so glad to talk about this with you. Um, And to get us started, what are your sun, moon, and rising signs? My sun is in Pisces. So 
hashtag anxious, no boundaries. Let's connect on like forever. The with deepest everyone. level. Yes. <laughs> uh, moon in Aquarius, which is an interesting vibe with the Pisces. Totally. Especially that emotional place. And then rising Capricorn. Mm, I... Uh... So Pisces and Aquarius, it's so interesting that you brought that up because that's true. They like Aquarius moons are typically more emotionally detached. Pisces is, is like all in on emotions. What I love about that cap rising is it's like, um, it's very grounding, you know? And also, I also Mm -hmm. love that you have this like dreamy Pisces energy with the analytical Aquarius. So you can get very analytical about the dreamy shit and then like keeps it all very grounded and relatable and like in the physical realm. So that's, that's Oh, thank you. Yeah. I actually think it's a really cool combo. Um, okay. So I'm going to dive into my trauma over here. Feel free to jump in with any thoughts, feelings, songs, whatever comes up for you along the way, or to just like eat some cheese, you know, whatever you want to do. And then at the end, I'll turn things back over to you so you can help us make sense of all of this insanity. Does that sound good? Sounds perfect. Okay, great. Cool. So my trauma light around being an anxious attachment style person, being drawn to avoidant attachment style folks, like a cute, smart, emotionally available moth to a cute, smart, emotionally unavailable flame (laughs) takes place in preschool. Let me set the stage. It's 1985. Your girl is four. She's cool. She's with it. She likes Cindy Lauper. She likes Madonna. She has a headband with floppy dog ears on it that she often wears yeah. to the park. Yeah. So cute. Had little spots on it. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was cute. And it all really makes you wonder like what other four-year-old wouldn't be into hanging out with her? Well, I'll tell you who Josh, cute Josh on whom I had a very spicy four-year-old crush was not feeling it. And the reason I know that is because for several days in a row, I was like, Josh, let's play house, dude. I'm cute. You're cute. I'm four. You're four. And Josh was like, no, no, I do not want to play house with you. And I also do not want to play in the sandbox with you. And I also oh do not God. want to go down the slide with you. No, <laughs> it was, it's a slide. I know it was a whole lot of no going on. Wow. So what did I do? I was like, um, okay, well, in that case, I'll chase you. I'll, I'll chase you on the playground. And that should convince you of my worth as a human and change the way you feel about me forever. Um, did I mention the dog headband? Obviously I have no idea if Josh actually grew up to be emotionally avoidant. He probably was just four and it was the eighties and he thought girls were gross or whatever. But what I think is so interesting when I think back on that was that with that, that like early instinct, you know, even then to run after literally run in that case, mm-hmm. after someone who was rejecting me mm-hmm. and that rejection, I mean, it, it felt so bad to me then that I still remember it very clearly today. I still yes. remember Josh and his cute little corduroy pants that he peed in once. And yet it didn't stop me from like <laughs> literally running after him. So Needless to say, I've had a lot of deeply painful experiences around this issue 
And I guess I'll start off with the precursor to anxious attachment style that I named at the beginning. And that is the attachment style established in a child's earliest relationships to their mother and father or whoever their caregivers are. So for me, both of my parents were super volatile. My mom's moods were really unpredictable. Sometimes she was really affectionate and loving. And other times she would rage uncontrollably. Other times she would sob and tell us we were her best friends and she was so sorry. My dad would flip between being completely uninterested in us and raging at us. There wasn't really any of that um, affection that my mom did give us sometimes. So this is one example of the root of anxious attachment style. I very much wanted close closeness with my parents and would try to figure out ways to get both of them to attach to me lovingly and in a non-scary way. And when it didn't work, I created the belief that there was something wrong with me, that they didn't want to attach in the same way that I did. As an adult, that original wound has sort of shown up in a few different ways. I've had to work on the belief that I have to work hard for others' affections, that they won't just love me as I am. Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, you know that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yup. Yeah, we know that one. Um, Where was I? Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, I've had to work on the belief that romantic love is something that other people get to have, but I don't. In the same way that I felt like nice, calm parents were something that other kids got to have, but I didn't. And I've had to work on the belief that I'm disposable and replaceable to others, especially the men Mm -hmm. I've dated. But I've also definitely felt that with friends too. So that sort of laid the groundwork for me to be super anxiously attached as an adult. And here is a great example. Many years ago, I met someone who was super hot and cold with me. One second, I was this goddess that he couldn't stop thinking about. The next, he'd be an hour late to pick me up or say that he was going to call and then just like not call. (laughs) And then I'd get really upset and he'd say I was overreacting and then I'd feel stupid and like I was too much. And then the cycle would repeat. And this cycle went on for 10 years, 10 years. I got sucked into this person treating me like sometimes I mattered, but mostly not. And by the way, we were never officially together when we would have sex. He'd want to leave right away. And then I wouldn't hear from him for weeks, which would send my self-esteem into a full-on spiral. But then I'd hear from it, hear from him out of the blue. And then suddenly I was back on top of the world because that meant that I wasn't actually disposable. And it meant that I did actually matter. And then of course we'd hang out, sleep together. And I wouldn't hear from him again. Mm -hmm. that situation finally ended when he did something that just hurt me too much. Like just, I was like, this is my fucking limit. We'd been talking and planning to see each other at a party. And in these text messages, he was calling me babe, which this is just, (laughs) Oh man. When I think back on it, it's such a sad thing about my anxious attachment, but something that small meant so much to me and made me feel like, oh, snap, like he's finally coming around. Like he wants to date. Fuck yeah, he's calling me babe. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to this party where he and I were going to see each other. And I kept seeing him out of the corner of my eye with his arm around this other girl. And I could see that he would try to make sure that I wasn't looking before he would like hold her or like kind of lean over and kiss her ear or whatever. And finally, I was like, what the shit is going on? And I asked a mutual friend and our friend was like, oh yeah, he's super pursuing her. Like he's super about her. 
and then <sighs> Duder left to take her home. And when he got back to the party, he tried to hook up with me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that, <laughs> yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. And that whole experience really broke something in me. The good news was that it was so far over the top in terms of permissible behavior that it ended my years long addiction to that guy that at that point had been going on for 10 years. Mm -hmm. But the bad news was that while it severed my ties with him specifically, it affirmed my deepest fear about men in general. And that was that men don't really love women. They just use women for sex and would do or say whatever it took to get them in bed, regardless of how much they would be hurting those women in the process. And that exacerbated my anxious attachment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found myself in a state of deep loneliness and this feeling of loss and grief around men. And at the same time, this disillusionment and sense that men uh, were just going to use me. So it was like, I wanted a relationship with a man profoundly and at the same time had no trust or faith in men. So basically that's just fucking anxiety city because you're fucked no matter what you do. More recently, I had another experience with a guy. He was someone I'd met years ago who reached out over Insta and pretty soon we were talking every day. He would text me first thing in the morning, send me videos from his work in the afternoon, and then he'd get home and we'd text again, like into the night. So we were talking a ton every single day. Then he told me he wanted to take me on this road trip all through the Southwest and Mexico over Christmas and New Year's. And I was like, oh my God, it's happening. This guy is smart. He's funny. He's creative. He has a great job. He wants to talk all the time. And he already wants to take me on this crazy fun vacation during Christmas and New Year's Eve. Like, fuck yeah, it's on. So after talking every day for a couple months, we did it. We went to White Sands. We went to Chaco Canyon. We went whale watching in Southern Baja. We trekked up to this like old mission in the mountains of Mexico. Like we had this incredible trip together, mm -hmm. but, and you knew a butt was coming. <laughs> yep. You're like, mm -hmm. uh, there were red flags. And a lot of it was that hot and cold behavior. Again, he was clear that he didn't want to cuddle after sex. He would be affectionate and then withdraw affection. He was super condescending when I told him I was agnostic. He told me he thought I was just too scared to say, to say I was an atheist. I was like, what? Like, thanks for mansplaining my own relationship to God to me. Like what? Uh, but there were times he was really sweet too. Um, and one of them was when he dropped me off before he headed back um, to his part of the world. He dropped me back off in Arizona. He embraced me and kissed me, like touching my face and like lingered looking behind him before he drove off. And then 10 minutes after he dropped me off and was like zooming on back home, he sent me a picture of the empty passenger seat in his truck and said that he was already, he said, I'm already very unhappy about this void in the truck. And then he got back to LA and just went back to texting me every day about like work or about like the blueberries he'd bought at the store or whatever, like, you know, casual shit he wanted to talk about. And I was so confused. I had mm. no idea what the situation was or what he mm -hmm. wanted. 
So I did what I had never done in the past with men. I advocated for myself and for my truth. In the past, I'd been so afraid of rejection that I wouldn't ask to have a clarifying conversation with a guy I was interested in. I would just try to match their level of aloofness Mm -hmm. or of intuitiveness so that I didn't make myself vulnerable. And I should say, I did never pretend that I was more into it than I was, except for when I was like really young in high school. But I, if I was into someone and they were giving me mixed signals, I would just kind of try, like if they were kind of into it in that moment, I would also show up as into it. But if they weren't, even though I really was, I would try to like emulate that back. Like, oh yeah, I'm cool. I've got this, like no big deal. That's like an attach, like, um, trauma risk. Like uh, that's the attach part in the nervous system where we kind of can like shape shift in order to like maintain the relationship. There's like fight, flight, freeze, submit and attach. And we don't talk a lot about the attach one. And that's when we kind of do whatever we possibly can in order to maintain connection. Oh, so even, oh, that makes so much sense. So even if the way that you're attaching is like, I'm reflecting back your level of aloofness, even yeah. that is a way of trying to maintain connection. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not authentic to what you are actually like feeling or wanting or like what your actual boundaries are. So it's inherently kind of, you know, re- it's like coming from a fear place. Like, Oh, I have to, you know, if I want to keep this person interested in me, then I have to match their energy, whatever that is, and just kind of like deal with whatever emotions are coming up on my side of the equation. Totally. And like T.O., like shape-shifting is totally a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Like we fully, when we shape-shift, it's because we don't feel like we get to be who we are and still get love. Yes. Oh, God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Shenanigans. Fuck. Yeah. It's God. It's so real. I've def, I mean, yeah, I pretty soon I need to do another episode on people pleasing, but like, yeah, shape-shifting is another word for people pleasing. It's the same. Yeah. It's part of the same beast. Totally. And that kind of being compounded by like the societal conditioning piece around gender, especially for folks who are socialized as, you know, girls or women or in that, that way, like you have to kind of appease and conform to you know, the patriarchy or to the man or et cetera. Right. So there's like the attachment layer, but then there's also all this societal messaging stuff happening at the same time. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's like literally in the Bible, you know, and that's been yes. used to like condition women and femme folks for so long about like you serve your dude. Like, even if you don't want to, even if you, if it doesn't feel true for you, it's still what you're going to fucking do. Not that all of us are raised um, in religious homes, but our our country is rooted in religion. You know, it's it's like yeah, we were the in pure- God we trust. Yeah, li- yeah, literally, yeah, dude. Okay, dude. Thank you for that. Such a good piece. Um, okay, yeah. So I would try to match their level of aloofness. And part of that was because I really believed for a very long time that I actually was too much. That was the messaging I'd gotten from so many emotionally unavailable people in my life, not just men, but just like, I mean, not just like people I was dating, but just like people. Uh, And I truly believed that asking to have a conversation to get on the same page with someone you'd been sleeping with was emotionally demanding. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. So I'd always been afraid of showing up authentically and being like, hi, I want and deserve some intel about, you know, how the F you feel and what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I'd come far enough in my healing to be like, yeah, this is weird that we're not having a conversation after we spent a 10 day vacation together during the holidays. And to be clear in this sitch with road trip, dude, I didn't really feel like a relationship would work between us unless he was open to being more physically affectionate. But I also didn't want to discount the possibility of something more serious without first having a conversation and getting clear on where he stood and whether physical affection was a possibility for him or not. Mm -hmm. Anyway, homeboy just flat out refused to have a conversation with me. I first, I, I was just like, let me just call like, and just be like, Hey, are you free? Like, let's talk. We're adults. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tried that a couple times. He texts me back hours later about something totally unrelated, but never acknowledged my phone calls. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of wow in this one. Uh, (laughs) You know, when I would text him to ask if we could have a conversation, he'd say he was just working so much and didn't have time. But then he'd text me for hours about nothing when he got off work. Mixed messages. Yeah. Just all over the place. Finally, after two weeks of that, I just sent him a voice memo to clarify where I was you know, coming from with the whole thing and asked him to have a listen and let me know his thoughts. But later when he never responded, I brought it up to him and he told me he'd listen to the first minute and then stopped because he was too busy. And wow. uh, yeah. And this was a five minute voice memo. Like you can listen to this in your car on your way to like the fucking convenience store around the corner. Like it wasn't a half hour message. Right. So basically at that point, I asked him not to reach out to me anymore because it wasn't feeling good. And he agreed not to, and then proceeded to continue to text me memes and whatever other meaningless shit he found on the internet while he was pooping in the morning or whatever. And to make a long story short, finally, after feeling super triggered by the whole thing, I had to unfriend him and block him. And I was super clear about it. I was like, I care about you and this sucks but I have to take care of myself and I can't even have platonic relationships with people who won't talk about their emotions with me, much less sexual relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are a couple illustrations of my experiences with avoidant attachment folks as an anxiously attached person. And I'll briefly um, talk about some of the things that have helped me in this journey. One anxiously attached people are codependent which can actually look, or, you know, they struggle with codependence, which can look a lot of different ways. People often think that if you're codependent, you always have to be in a relationship. I have not been in a real relationship since high school and I'm 41. Um, But what does come up for me is that rather than seeing a situation from my own perspective and getting really clear on what's true for me in the past, I've often tried to understand what the situation looks like from the dude's perspective and respond according to that. By the way, I should say it's not just men who are emotionally unavailable. It's just that uh, I'm a heterosexual woman. And so these are the, these are the people that I've experienced it with, but um, I should make it clear. It's not, it's definitely not just men. Um, yeah. So if he's acting like he's interested, then I can match, match that. And if he's aloof, then I have to be aloof too. So like we were just talking about, 
my responses haven't come from being in my truth. They've come from trying to figure out how the other person feels and then acting according to that so that I make sure I keep them around because my greatest fear is that they'll leave me and affirm my fear that I'm disposable. So the healing has been in really focusing in on how I'm feeling, what I want, and if I'm happy. And if I'm not voicing that, like coming from my truth, knowing that the other person might decide to leave like, or might be upset, et cetera. And just letting that be without trying to force a situation that isn't working on its own, which I will tell you the day that I unfriended him from all of the social media road trip, dude, I cried. I mean, I sobbed like heaving sobs because it was like, um, I, cause, cause it was like, I didn't get to keep this. I didn't get to have the attachment that I wanted. And I was yeah. really trying to, I was doing all of these things to try to figure out how to be able to keep it. And in the end I couldn't keep it. And I knew it was fucked. I knew it was not working. I knew it was toxic, but I want attachment. I want connection. I want, um, a relationship, you know? And so here was this person who we, in so many ways, worked, but in ways that really mattered, didn't. And I knew I had to let it go, but it was still so fucking hard. So I do want to like acknowledge that it's not easy to do that. And even for me, and I've, you know, try to be aware of my shit, even for me, that process took months. It, it took me months before I could get to the point where I, I, you know, finally put my foot down and drew my line in the sand. So I do want to say that. The other piece for me has been in disabusing myself of this fantasy that I'm the source of the problem, which isn't to say that I don't need to take responsibility for my role in these dynamics, but my come from for many years was that men who didn't want to be with me, didn't want to be with me because something was wrong with me. And I needed to figure out what that thing was and fix it. In other words, I just projected my wound from my parents onto my relationships with men rather than looking at this guy's behavior and asking if that was working for me. This became clearer for me a few years ago when this is a story that I love to tell. I was at a gas station trying to fill up my tires at one of those gas station air machines. I kept trying and kept trying. And it just wasn't working. And I kept putting money in the machine because it would like run out. And I kept trying to hold the air gauge thingy a different it's way. Literally my nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I hate that machine so I, much. Well, they're already kind of tricky, right? But like, usually you can fucking figure it out. Anyway, I, I just kept thinking like, I'm going to make this work. And finally, after like literally 10 minutes of me fucking with this machine, this dude walked up to me and was like, excuse me, miss, just so you know, this machine is broken. No, <laughs> I was so stunned and immediately had this flash of all the times in my life. I'd assumed that I was the problem in a situation. And if I could just do things a little differently this time, I could find the magical key that would unlock the door and get me the results I wanted from this guy. Never once had it occurred to me that maybe I wasn't the problem. Maybe. Nope. It's this fucking person. 
And again, I don't mean that to be a mechanism for shirking responsibility for the healing we all need to do on our end. But for someone who grew up around the messaging that they are a problem for just existing, it's easy to take up that kind of space as an adult and assume that someone doesn't want you because you're inherently flawed rather than because that person struggles with intimacy and is afraid of connection. And that has nothing to do with you. And there's nothing you can do to fix it. Okay. So with that, Celesta, I'm going to turn things back to you. And I, and I, I'm so, uh, I am waiting with bated breath to hear more about <laughs> like, your work with this, um, topic. And I guess I'll start with a question that haunts me. And that mm-hmm. is, what is the core of the attraction between anxious and avoidant attachment folks? Like why do they attract each other like magnets? I I mean, most simply it's like a reenacting of your childhood woundings because there is like that inner child that is still trying to get that attachment. And like in the story that you were sharing about growing up, you know, in an environment where it was super chaotic, and you have parents who are flip-flopping on their emotions, on their availability. There's kind of like this inherent, um, always trying to figure it out. Oh, how can I get my needs met? Because that's really what attachment is, is um, a secure, a securely attached baby (laughs) is one who receives consistent um, caregiving. And a lot of people think of caregiving just in like the physical form like oh you need to you know have a a a roof over your head and food to eat and it's like safe enough and like yes like those are incredibly important foundational pieces for a child to grow and develop um, and have a healthy sense of self but humans are fucking complicated and extremely sensitive especially especially a baby Um, and most folks especially of older generations who didn't have you know access to mental health and was highly stigmatized probably haven't worked through any of their trauma and their um relational issues so that's just gonna play out automatically even if you have a parent that you know I often hear people say like, oh, well, I just don't want to, you know, be like my parents. And it's like, well, unless you actively work on that, you know, it's going to happen. Like even when you actively work on it, it happens, but you're able to catch it and then repair it. And then that's where, you know, the healing and change happens. Um, So all that to say a securely attached baby is one who received um, consistent emotional caregiving as well. Like Mm. we often forget about the emotional neglect, um, which includes um, not having someone mirror back to you, your emotional experience. If you have people around you saying you're too much, your emotions are too much, that's not going to teach the child how to regulate themselves and how to, um, not feel bad about themselves and said they're going to get the exact opposite experience. And then with like anxious, uh, with avoidant attachment folks, and there's kind of like two branches of avoidant, avoidant attachment. There's like dismissive avoidant, avoidant, which is where the person is, you know, red flags would be not able to talk about emotions at all, or kind of more like gaslighty type Mm -hmm. behaviors. Like, you don't know what you're talking about or, oh, you're so emotional or just like straight up ghosting or, you know, kind of like more cruel, like mean behaviors um, versus like a preoccupied avoidant attachment person 
who they might be actually having a lot of internal conflict about whether or not they actually want to be with this person. Like mm. they both really want intimacy. Um, like your second story kind of reminded me about that. Like in some ways this person is able to like, you know, go on a trip and like, which is like a very intimate experience it and like, yes. yeah, extremely intimate. But then in other ways, when it comes to, you know, having those authentic, vulnerable conversations, then it's like, <gasps> this is too much. This is scary. Now, now I need to run the fuck away. I can't do this. So it, it can have different flavors in that way but all of it is that reenactment of whatever your family system was growing up so so okay I am so curious what kind of behaviors uh does a child experience that uh, from their caregivers that leads them to become avoidant what does that look like totally so I mean avoidant is very much on the like um it can the internal beliefs can kind of be twofold. Either one, I'm going to be like consumed by this other person. So they might like overwhelmed by this other person's energy. So they might've had a caregiver that was, um, didn't have any boundaries, maybe was too sharing of their emotions, expected the child to caretake them was, um, yeah, like the gesture I'm doing right now is like this big, like the biggest wave or yes. something kind of coming over and this little child that, you know, they don't know how to <laughs> take care of an adult. That's yeah. what the adult is for. Right. So that can be, so the avoidant can be like, okay, I don't want to feel that level of overwhelm again. I can't deal with that. I don't want to do that. So then they might be getting triggered if someone expresses bigger you know, fuller emotions. And so their work is to increase their um, tolerance for um, emotional expression, because on the other, you know, side of the equation, which is often with anxious folks, like you said, you get the message that your emotions are too much, which also isn't true. Like we're allowed to have big emotions when we are adult, like consenting adults, like a big part of the healing overall is um, like seeking intimacy rather than necessarily seeking another caretaker attachment mm. as adult. Like how do we come together and be in intimacy and authenticity and respect each other's boundaries? And how do we also handle separation, which is a lot of the, um, the anxious babies uh, as an adult work to learn how to increase their tolerance for that separation. Because a lot of the times the avoidant person, um, like let's say if there's a conflict, they might need more alone time mm -hmm. to um, get, you know, for their nervous system to regulate itself. And then, then ideally, you know, if you're going to have any relationship, there does need to be that coming back together in that repair moment. Otherwise it's just, you just don't have a relationship. Right. So the overwhelm is one thing that can influence like avoidant attachment. And the other one is having very absent, um, Parents. neglect neglect yeah yeah it's like oh wow I can't depend on anyone so I'm just going to depend on myself and it's really hard to trust other people and to let people in because there's that fear of trusting again and if someone like doesn't meet their expectation or they feel some level of unsafety then they're like oh I knew it I need to just take care of myself and I can't trust anyone and I'm better off alone right yes oh my god okay so I think the first story I talked about was the dismissive avoidant 
more of the cruel stuff. The second one was the, um, sorry, tell me again what it's called. Preoccupied. preoccupied so there's like high anxiety going on right because like they might even know like oh I don't even know how to tell them so like yeah I know I'm not gonna have this conversation but right. of course they're all of attachment is a spectrum so there can be quite the mix right okay and so when we are when us attack anxious attached anxiously attached folks when we are um being drawn toward these people who are avoidant in whatever way they're avoidant, it is because they remind us of the type of parenting and caregiving we experienced as children. And I, and I'm, I, this is kind of what I gather from the therapy that I've done is that it's like, you're subconsciously trying to repair that pain, you're going back to that original wound in an attempt to repair it. But we think that we can repair it with this person rather than uh, realizing that we actually have to repair it within ourselves. It's not something we can repair with this person. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I know it's like really inconvenient. It would be so much easier (laughs) if we could just like all do that together. And you know, sometimes like that does happen. Like when they're depending on the avoidant person and the anxious person person's level of tolerance and their commitment to the other person. And, and cause any relationship, regardless of attachment, it's about, are you willing to talk, yeah. <laughs> talk about it, <laughs> be, be authentic. So if that's not there, then regardless even of attachment style it's pretty hard to have a relationship with anyone like relationships take work so they're like avoiding an attachment it's not a doomed scenario either right it just it just takes more work and right. then so then it's a question of the person where they're at in in their um dating journey or maybe they're already in a relationship those would are like different situations of what you're willing to put into it, you know, and there's no like roadmap for that. That's just an individual choice, but the chaos that comes for anxiously attached people of like reenacting like that hot and that cold, like kind of, like you said, like being addicted to that or even just expecting that, or that's only what you deserve. That's also part of that reenactment and that magnetic connection. And then the avoidant people, why they might get, you know, attached to the like initially seek out that anxious person is because on some level they do want you know intimacy they do want to feel cared and loved for and someone who's giving them attention which is also where like you know I'm not super big into like diagnosing personality disorders but there are certain traits especially like narcissistic traits that tend more towards avoidance. So that can also become a part of the mix where someone um, anxious people can tend to idealize people and have like a fantasy. And then when we have like the societal conditionings of, well, you, you have to be uh, married by this time and then you have to have children by this time. And it gets people brings up a lot of anxiety of like, well, I need to make this happen. And where is this relationship going? And are we going to move to the next stage? And that's like the relationship escalator, which I always encourage folks to like, step off and just get off the escalator, get off the escalator and just be with the person and 
you know, find your own boundaries and needs and milestones. And if those include marriage and children, then that's fantastic. But, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. But all of that to say, like, anxious people have a tendency to fantasize and idealize. And that also is, you know, not necessarily fair to the avoidant person. Cause when we idealize someone, we're not actually seeing them for who they are. We're seeing them for who they could be. Right. And then yeah. if that person does have some like narcissistic traits, then like, they're really going to like love that. And eventually there's going to be a big devaluation right. of like, Oh my gosh, this person didn't meet my needs. And then there's just a lot of conflict and then they might ghost or they might gaslight or, or whatever. So it can get complicated quick. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I am not surprised to hear that anxious people fantasize and idealize and that that's like part of the deal because baby, let me tell you that has been my thing. Like, man, if I can make a narrative out of you, that's just like part of my own imagination and like really not rooted in reality. Like, yes, I, know. <laughs> I will I'll fucking dive right in. I'm a writer. I can, I can imagine shit all day long. Okay. Um, sometimes I am afraid to have compassion for people who are unavailable because compassion can be a hook that keeps me emotionally involved with a person who can't match my needs and has been <laughs> like, I'll be like, Oh, they had a shitty childhood and they're so terrified of intimacy. So I just have compassion that maybe they'll come around that said, I'm curious if you have any insight into how, um, emotionally unavailable people, like, do they, um, I guess from what you're, I was going to say, do they, do they want intimacy romantically? But um, from what you said, it sounds like it kind of depends where they are on the scale. And I guess now my question is people who are, um, dismissive avoidant, do they want, cause it sounds like the, the preoccupied ones do, they just kind of don't know how to handle it. But the other one, the yeah. dismissive ones, do they want it? Um, I mean, I am not one of those, <laughs> so it's hard to say, but, um, yeah, I, it's, it's what I would say is that look at it kind of as someone who has very limited capacity okay. for engagement. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're, that's where it really comes down to the individual figuring out what, like, we have all these terms, like, you know, um, romantic intimacy or partnership or um, these like relationship terms, but really what folks who are interacting with one another, they need to talk about those terms together. What do they actually mean? What do they look like? Because that's a lot of where um, misalignments can happen just based on like having these, you know, kind of commonplace terms. Um, so, I, so I say that because with the um, dismissive avoidant person, you know, they, what intimacy looks like to them might look very different mm. to an anxious attachment person. Does that mean they can't have a relationship of some kind? That is really dependent upon both of the people and where there's overlap. That also is dependent upon, are these people engaging in a monogamous relationship? Are they doing non-monogamy? And how does that interact with things and non-traditional relationship structures? Because um, another 
place of healing that can be helpful, especially for anxious attachment people, is developing a wide network of support. Where, because again, because of social conditionings where, you know, women were literally had to get married to a man in order to be able to survive society because they didn't have any like income or access to credit or like education or any of these things. And that wasn't even that long ago. I think it was in the seventies that women were allowed to get credit cards. Yeah. It's fucking insane. Nuts. So it, it, it just depends on like what that person is really wanting and what they are conceptualizing as a partner, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is a dismissive avoidant person ever going to be able to talk authentically about their emotions and like a high stress situation? Probably not. Mm. Like just to be straight up about it, unless like they're, they have a desire and thus an awareness. First, you have to have an awareness and then a desire to change. That's for anything in therapy. If that's not there, then no. yeah, it's, <laughs> then that's, no. a, that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. That's really, and I think that's really helpful. And we can look for those flags in people when they, um, when we see those signs of dismissive attachment, just knowing I just being like, okay, I know the signs of dismissive attachment. I know I'm anxiously attached. I know that I can pretend that this person is someone they're not, but I know like these are concrete signs like ghosting. Um, what are some other ones? Like dismissing, like straight up dismissing Gaslighting. Like your, your experience. Yes. Being very like, oh, well, I like, I only listened to a minute of it or I'm so busy. I'm so busy. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, we're all busy. Okay. Right. Like you're not that special. Right. Like give me a break. It reminds me the first guy I was talking about one time I told him that it really hurt my feelings that we would have sex. And then I wouldn't hear from him. And I told him, it makes me feel like you don't care about me even as a friend. And we, and we had all the same friends. We'd known each other at that point for like eight years, you know? And I was like, it just makes me feel like you don't care about me. Like even as a person. And his response was, that's really stupid of you. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That, that red flag. (laughs) Yeah. He was, and but because name calling definitely a red flag. Yeah. He was like, you're just being really stupid. Of course I care about you. And I was like, and I was so, um, in my trauma at the time that I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm really stupid. And like, I should have just known that he cared. You know what I mean? But it's like, how could I have fucking known? Okay. So these are some of the flags that when we see them, we can say this person is dismissive. And even though I'm probably making up some fantasies about them, they're not true. And they, this person probably is not capable of meeting me with the level of intimacy that I want. So let's take steps from that place. So I think that's really like having that kind of clarity is really helpful. And okay. Oh yeah. And with the preoccupied, like yes. um, preoccupied avoidant person with that kind of situation, I do think there is a lot more opportunity for having authentic connection, but both people really need to go slow in mm. the relationship, right. you know, and that is hard for both people. Cause uh, it can be like this magnet, right? This attraction, just like, 
coming together, but it's really, especially for the anxious person, just like taking things slowly is going to be helpful for both people in the long run. And is going to allow, especially that preoccupied anxious person to kind of adjust a little bit more, have a little bit more, they're probably going to need more alone time, more breaks, et cetera. But you can set boundaries with like, um, consistency, like, well, you know, I, I like, I need us to be able to see each other, you know, like once a month at like for like doing this kind of thing, (laughs) like, or I need us to be able to, you know, um, just like talking about relationship expectations, especially as it relates to texting, which can be very activating (laughs) for anxiously attached people as well and very overwhelmed like it's activating for both but in very different ways where the anxious person that attached part starts to come out like okay well why I need to keep coming towards them and coming towards them and coming towards them otherwise I'm going to lose this connection whereas the avoidant um, person is like oh I need to back the fuck up I need to back the fuck up this is so overwhelming to me like whole like because they there's also can be sometimes a fear with preoccupied um, avoidant people that they're going to hurt mm. the person that is pursuing them but in Wh- their why? withdrawal because they because um, of their own kind of like uh, uh, basically a fear of not meeting their expectations okay like that that's one of like the more deeper beliefs is like oh actually I'm not good enough so mm. both can have self-esteem issues whereas mm. the dismissive avoidant person probably doesn't have as many like uh or at least conscious like self-esteem issues right okay okay oh my god that is so helpful and I like as I was listening to you talk I was just thinking about how um how I, as an anxiously attached person, I, I, it's so hard for me to like sit on my own hands when I like, I want connection all the time. Like I want, I want to talk all the time. Like I want, uh, yeah, those lags in communication create a lot of anxiety for me. And it's, and I know that I've done that before where I, I can tell that the other person needs space, but that gives me so much anxiety that I don't know. I will say that like the um, survival tactic that I learned, the strategy that I learned was, oh, if you're aloof, I'm aloof too. So, cause I right. thought like, I don't want to scare you away and I'm too much. So I'm just going to sit over here and act like I don't care. And this is actually what was difficult for me when I was, uh, I don't, I don't want to say diagnosed, but when like I worked with my therapist on these like quiz things to figure out my attachment style. And she was yes. like you have anxious attachment style. When I was reading about it, I was like, I don't think I do because it was talking about how anxious attachment style people, when they feel the other person kind of moving away or they feel not appreciated by that person, they have these kind of like big emotional outbursts or, um, shows of emotion or like begging the person to say whatever. I would never do that. I would never beg in a million years. I'd be like, Oh my God, no way. Like if you're, if you're pulling away, then I'm pulling away too. But it wasn't because I wasn't pulling away. And this is where the anxious part comes in. I wasn't pulling away because I wanted space. I was pulling away as a strategy to keep the person around and to keep myself safe. And, um, yeah, so that, I just want to put that piece out there because I super relate to it and it can look different ways. It doesn't necessarily 
the anxiety can can manifest in different ways. And especially if you grew up in a family system where you're a, where big emotional expressions were very much not okay, mm-hmm. of course, you're not going to reenact that in your adult attachment situations. Right. You're just going to be experiencing it on your own. Right. And that, I think I want to name this because I feel like this was so, this was such a fucking common parenting practice. I grew up in the eighties and like, I don't think parents know what the fuck they were doing. I mean, they still kind of don't, but God damn it. The eighties, the seventies, like so bad. But my mom would say, if you're going to cry, go to your room. And it was like, there was no, first of all, it was shameful that you were crying. So like, fuck you for crying. And then it's like, if you're going to do that, you're going to do that alone because I don't have time for that shit. I don't want that shit. And so it was this sense of like, yeah, I can't show, I can't just show people how emotional I'm feeling about this because they're going to be like, ew, go to your room, get out of here. And so it is interesting. Um, also for me, because a lot of times I assume that my anxious attachment is because of my dad. But I think a lot of it is also because of my mom and there, yeah. even though she was the most affectionate one of the two, uh, there, there was a, there was so much back and forth. So yes, exactly. And that piece kind of like uh, makes me think of this other question, um, around like the anxious attachment and the, um, kind of always wanting to attach. My question is, can you talk about the importance of boundaries for anxious attachment style folks when they're looking to partner because we're not good at it. <laughs> yes. I mean, boundaries are literally everything. <laughs> like <laughs> The most like essential thing of relationships. Um, but I think one of the things that can inform boundaries as like a foundational piece or like a step one is really acknowledging what, um, Like if you were unapologetic about your needs, what would be like the five things that you need in a relationship and kind of going from there. And so Mm. that can be one, one practice of having a boundary. Like you're rooted in what do you actually need? Like going from that place rather than from this like shapeshifter place, like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll compromise this. I'll conform this. And that doesn't of course mean like in a long-term relationship, there are many like give and takes and like working together, but I'm not really big on the, this whole idea of like, you know, relationships are hard and they involve a lot of sacrifice. I'm like, right. no. Right. I love that so much. I have a couple things happening in my head right now. The first thing is I really love that you're talking about creating boundaries with yourself. Cause normally we think about boundaries with other people and like we, and if that's the case, then we don't have an opportunity to practice boundaries until we get into a relationship with someone in some way. But what you're talking about is getting a boundary with yourself where you're like, Hey self, these are the things that you need in order to be happy in a relationship. And so if you don't see those in other people, you have to, you have to draw the line with you and say like, this isn't for me. What's for me is like, I need a certain, I need to spend a certain amount of time every day with this person. I need physical, that's one for me, physical affection. I need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need mm-hmm. someone who maybe doesn't, um, you don't have to be the best communicator, but you have to be willing to communicate yes. with me about stuff. That's hard. Like if you can't communicate with me, then where are we fucking going? You know, you have yeah. to be interested in me. If you're like dating other people, 
because I'm a monogamous person and that's okay if you're not, but I am monogamous. So if you're not interested in me and only me, then it's not going to work, you know? So exactly. I'm sure I could think of some other ones, but these are, yeah, this is so helpful. And the second thing that I'm thinking about right now on the 10th of this month, Venus went retrograde and Venus retrograde is about a few things, but the, the, one of the core things about Venus is it wants you to understand your values. And when it retrogrades, that is a time when it'll be in retrograde, by the way, through the end of January, I think January 29th. So that's a long, you know, it's a long time for you to start kind of gathering information about what your true values are and whether or not you are acting from that place. So I think what you're talking about right now, it's so cool that we're having this conversation during Venus retrograde, because what you're talking about is exactly that. What are your values when it comes to relationships? And are you seeking relationships from that space and from, um, that boundary? to have with yourself exactly and like when we have boundaries it's about teaching other people how to interact with you like we also can't um and I don't know if this is necessarily like an anxious thing or not I think it's maybe perhaps more of a human thing slash also growing up in a society that's like completely emotionally inept and like doesn't like (laughs) talk about those things at all but teaching people like when you set boundaries with people it's not always this like brick wall or this like cement like boundaries like it can actually be very um fluid and malleable and like um if anything boundaries should actually always be this kind of constant more like now I'm doing this like jellyfish gesture. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so into your arm, your gesticulations. I wish people yes. could see right now. Before the wave was like these, it looks like like a big curve, big curved arms. And this is like flowy arms that are coming back and forth. Yeah. Yes, back and forth. And uh, yeah, I'm a somatic therapist. So like that's why I do a lot yes. of gestures. But that's actually one way you can, um, especially if people have, challenges with um setting boundaries often holding them is the harder part like you can set a boundary but then like you know maybe they don't um react to it well or like they don't react in the way right that we're hoping they're going to react so that's like a brain trip that can also trip up like anxious um attachment folks is like really having to differentiate between am I communicating this because this is my truth? This is my boundary. This is my value. Or am I communicating because I'm hoping I'm going to get a response, a certain response from this person. Mm -hmm. If I communicate in this way, and if it's the latter, then like take a break, like, you know, take, take some time, do some breathing, like whatever. And like reevaluate how to communicate that because that's, that's, um, and I don't mean like manipulative and like this like evil way we usually think of like manipulation, right. but it's just like, it is kind of, you're trying to get a response out of someone. So inherently it's there, you're just going to set yourself up for disappointment most totally. likely. Yeah. Um, and then when we actually have these boundaries, it helps with that reparenting, which is the bulk of the work for any attachment style healing is giving your inner child or inner teenager or whoever is freaking the fuck out on the inside when we're having these relationship um, experiences, 
giving them the parenting that they didn't get growing Mm. up. So when having like, you know, big emotions or disappointment, like I hate feeling disappointed. It's one Mm. of my least favorite emotions. So my like adult self, my inner parent needs to attune to my inner child in a way that helps um, soothe them and assure them and hold them, show them compassion for those big emotions. And that's all of that, the boundaries, the reparenting helps develop an actual sense of self. And that sense of self almost like builds this like redwood tree up inside of this, like almost like having more of a spine and like Mm. feeling like I have this core, I have this center and like, I guess I can move over here and, oh, this feels really good. Oh no, it's not really feeling good anymore. Okay. Well, I'm coming back to my center. I can always come back to my center because attachment self for those secure babies which i'm like i very rarely meet secure people where the just fuck like, are these people <laughs> you know like what in, in in a lot of the articles like it makes them seem like uh like there are more of them than i think they are i think a lot of the literature <laughs> is like out of date but maybe that's just like my own bias but it's I just like that. i see a lot of people struggling with this stuff they're like 41 so, percent of all people are and i'm like 41 what or like whatever it yeah, is 50- i i don't know about that i am yeah very skeptical on all of that but what they also got as children that helps them feel that sense of self and that ability like a secure adult, what differentiates them from uh, uh, the more insecure attachment styles is an ability to, yes, like be intimate and talk about feelings, but also to leave mm-hmm. when shit is not feeling good. They're like, they're, they're like, oh, this isn't feeling good. Okay. Like, bye. I'm good. Like, yeah. Bye. I don't need this. And I don't need this. So when in childhood, there's this thing called secure base having a secure base. And that's what the parent is meant to be. So that when the child, as they grow and develop, they're moving from baby status to toddler status to like adolescent status. when they're going out, they're exploring the world. Oh, maybe they trip and they like, they're like, oh my gosh, am I okay? And they look back at the parent and the parent responds and they're like, yeah, you're okay. You got this. Like encouragement, assurance, et cetera. They're like, okay, yeah. And then they go out and they explore again. And so if they get that kind of consistent parenting throughout their life they're going to then internalize that mm-hmm. and be able to carry that into their adult romantic relationships so that's why boundaries are very essential so and kind of developing your own secure base within yourself this makes me think of a story when i was probably uh 9 or 8 i was peeling a carrot And I was helping my mom make dinner and I peeled the top of my finger and, um, yeah. And like, you know, there's not a whole lot of skin there anyway. There's like a bone like right there. So I, I skinned it and I, uh, I remember I grabbed it right away and I told my mom what happened. I turned around to my mom and I told her what happened and my mom immediately started freaking out. And I started calming her down. I said, it's okay. It's okay. I'm okay. And I said, it doesn't hurt. And my mom said, well, it's about to. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes. So it's just, I'm thinking about like, these are kind of the moments where you start to understand this is where my 
anxious attachment comes from. And this is where my anxiety comes yes. from. It's like, yeah, I didn't really necessarily have that base to tell me that I was okay and it was all going to be okay. And I could keep exploring. Um, and I spent that whole, like the whole rest of that, like next 30 minutes, my mom did, you know, she got a band aid, you know, did all the things, right. but I spent the whole time emotionally caring for her. And, and I remember yes. even saying, mom, I can still smile you know, like oh. stuff like that to try to like, um, yes. but it was because I was trying to create safety and I was trying to feel safe. And if she wasn't feeling safe, then I wasn't yep. feeling safe. And so that's, maybe that's just helpful for people to give an idea of like what these moments can look like when you, um, are anxiously attached and like, kind of think back on their own, uh, experiences with their parents. Um, but I have, okay. So I have one last question for you for anxiously attached folks, these relationships are super painful and underscore a lot of the limiting beliefs that they have about themselves. For me, it was like, I'm disposable. I'm inherently flawed, you know, et cetera. So what are some healing tools for those of us who want connection so much, but are so afraid of being abandoned? Yeah. So that, um, like reparenting I was speaking about, like definitely number one and what that can look like uh, one of my favorite therapeutic modalities is parts work by Janina Fisher oh. and where she kind of outlines, um, you know, we have our fight response, our flight response, uh, freeze, submit and attach. And a big part of that is just starting to name and notice when your parts are coming up. Mm. So, and, and note from like a somatic lens, noticing, um, what are the sensations happening in your body when you're starting to feel like, let's say someone doesn't text you back in a certain frame time and starting to notice, okay, what are the sensations that happen? Okay. I start to feel really hot. And I feel like this, like, um, tingling feeling coming up my chest. And then what are the emotions? All oh, the emotions are maybe fear, maybe anger, maybe like whatever it is, but noticing those things. And then what are the thoughts that happen? Oh my gosh, this person, um, maybe they're actually talking to someone else. Oh my God. Like, what are the stories that like come up yep. in our brain? So, and when you start to bring awareness to the, that, you know, sensation, emotion, thought process, whenever you're feeling activated or triggered, whatever word you prefer, then that's when you can start to implement a pause and practice, you know, uh, you can even set a timer for like 20 minutes because usually our nervous system, once we become aware of our activation, it will calm down after 20 minutes. If we're putting some like intentionality around like, okay, like I'm really fucking activated right now. Maybe I'm going to go like rage journal right now, or maybe I'm going to, um, uh, like write a letter that I never send or write an email that I never send, but at least discharging this um, activation that I'm feeling in the moment. But also in that pause, what you can do is catch what we would call emotional flashbacks. Mm -hmm. Cause like we've been talking throughout this whole episode, so much of this is about what happened to us uh, or didn't happen to us as, as children, like we didn't get that, um, assurance or encouragement or compassion or understanding or explanation about like, what the fuck is going on? Like, right. those are all things that a child needs in order to transform, um, really activating emotions that can become traumatizing experiences when it's like too much, like adrenaline and cortisol running through our veins. When we have someone providing those kinds of um, reactions, then we can shift, 
you know, anger into like a creative outlet, or we can shift um, disappointment into um, acceptance or et cetera, et cetera. And so one verbal um, tip is literally saying out loud, oh, I'm having an emotional flashback right now. Ah. Like naming it out loud, like I'm having a flashback. Just like when we talk about PTSD and uh, people might um, have in like, uh, I I want to say like traditional PTSD, but in more like, just like in a more like diagnostic way, like people have, you know, usually visual flashbacks. Like, you know, maybe they were in some kind of horrific situation in a war or in a car accident. So, and then the flashback they can see and then they know, oh, this is why, you know, I'm having these big emotions right now. But for most people, especially when it comes to developmental trauma, attachment trauma, which is ultimately what we're talking about, there isn't going to be a visual component. And then so people just feel fucking crazy or too much or overwhelmed or whatever. But the body doesn't lie. So noticing those emotions and those sensations, catching them, and then saying, I'm having an emotional flashback or I'm having a flashback can be one way to pause, like bring a little bit of spaciousness and then bringing in that mindful awareness. And then you go to your tools, whether that's journaling, whether that's breathing, whether that's calling a friend, whether that's going on a walk, connecting with nature, connecting with spirit, connecting, uh, you know, there are other ways of, especially for that anxious attachment, which like you're saying, like, I want to connect all the time, (laughs) you know, ancestors and spirit, they're here all the time. Nature is always accessible to us. So that can be a a really beautiful, powerful way to have a tool available to us that is still helping us build that sense of self. And we're not necessarily, um, crossing our own boundaries by continuing to text the person or continuing to worry or continuing to feel, well, are they mad at me? Like, are they going to leave me? Da, 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 da. And brain is just spiraling, spiraling, spiraling. I love what you said about emotional flashbacks and how um, people who have different sorts of PTSD may have a visual association, but because um, ours might be more... Um, emotionally based there isn't a visual so we just feel crazy that hits so hard for me I feel that so fucking hard I've had so uh I well I dated a person um this has been I don't know maybe six years ago or something or seven um and he did not text he had not texted me within four hours I'd been on a I'd been out of the country and I just got back and I was like okay he's done like And I didn't, and and I didn't even like him that much to be completely honest with you, but, but the fact that he had not chosen me and was, and was showing me that I didn't matter. I, or or anyway, that's how I interpreted it. Right. That was the belief. That that was the belief. Yeah. Yeah. He was just probably fucking doing his thing. And then later he did text me back, but within four hours he had not. And so in my mind, and I didn't know this at the time. I I was on the floor sobbing. And now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh yeah, I was having an emotional flashback to you don't matter. You're disposable. I'm done with you. Yeah. Yeah. No one. And I was like, and I, I had, it was like, there were two parts of me. There was the part of me that was on the floor sobbing. And then there was like, another part of me that was looking down on sobbing me being like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, Ooh, that sounds like fight part. 
very critical. They're, they're the one that's like kind of management. Like you need to like get the fuck off the floor. Yes. They're trying to protect the human, be like, get your shit together because yes. we don't want to be further, you know, like harmed by the world or judged or whatever. So that's often the fight part, very critical part. Interesting because yeah, that part of me was like, um, this is why guys don't like you is because you're fucking crazy and you're like, you're so intense and you're going to be alone forever because you do shit like this. And yeah. So, oh my God, that is so, that is really, really, really helpful. Yes. The fight part can be a total asshole. Asshole. And they're, yes. And they're, they're coming. They're almost like a mean aunt or something like that, who like thinks they're like trying to like help you by like, giving you quote unquote tough love. Right. So it's like a self-protection mechanism. So that's where the other kind of like talking to yourself and this can be out loud or this can be journaling being like, I am not back there. Like, you know, like this is not, I am not being abandoned by my parents. Like I am not like back this like abusive person that I was dating for X amount of time. Like that's not what is happening. So that's kind of that reality checking that can help calm the nervous system and then speaking to that fight part being like what are you scared of and they're like well I'm scared you're gonna get hurt we're like well you're hurting me now oh wow you know so like talking to those parts a little bit more that also develops that more authentic self that more empowered self that some people call it higher self authentic self true self whatever works for you that's kind of parts work in a whole uh, uh, this has been so incredible and so helpful. Celeste, thank you so, 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 so much for coming on. And if people want to find you out there in the ether, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me, um, at fullandplentyjoy.com. I sent out a weekly email called weekly wormholes where I just go down these, like, <laughs> yeah, these little like research holes on various things. On and like if you're therapy self- things or what kind of, things? um, sometimes, uh, kind of, I like to work at the intersection of psychology, um, embodiment, um, ancestry spirit, and then kind of like um, pop culture movies, film, and how that is all just like a way to better understand ourselves. Also what our ancestors went through. Cause that could also be going on as well. Like in our really big emotional reactions are kind of like that intergenerational trauma piece. So yeah, my wormholes at least recently have very much been around, um, ancestral research and how that influences how we are today, both as ourselves and relationally. Amazing. Um, and then for folks who are seeking psychotherapy and located in the state of California, you can find me uh, just by reaching out to me at the Respire Therapy Group or at my email, mft at gmail.com. I use my um, legal given name for my private practice, um, but my you know, artistry is, um, and chosen name is Solasta McIntyre, which is through full and plenty joy. Amazing. Yay. Thank you. So I much. also just want to like spotlight one other, uh, great resource yes, that I, please. I use like all of the time is, um, the multi, uh, multi podcast. Uh, they literally have like hundreds and hundreds of like different things about, um, relationship stuff. And then there's also AEDP therapy, which is really good relational therapy for attachment work. Um, So uh, yeah, those are just some other resources I would recommend. What was the last one? 
AEDP, it's a kind of therapy that's specifically focused on working relationally. Ah. So like you're basically talking all of the time with your therapist about like, what you think they think of you. <laughs> Interesting. Like, yeah, you're just being like straight up all of, and it's really about developing, like working through all the attachment stuff in the therapeutic relationship in a conscious way. Whoa, that sounds so radical. Whoa, oh my God, I need to look into that. That sounds really cool. Yay. And if y'all want to uh, get a hold of me, I am at the pajama party at gmail.com. Hit me up anytime. Uh, like, review, subscribe. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And um, Celeste, thank you again so, so much for coming on. You're a fucking joy and you're so smart and so great to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Emmy. And for the rest of you, enjoy the party, baby. Bye.